Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Good morning. Great to have you join us this morning as we continue our series looking at faith. So a couple of weeks ago, Simon kicked off this series looking at how faith starts with a fact. And then last week, he continued going on saying how it then moves forward with friends. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been a bit of a joke directed at me. And I've been the brunt of the jokes from Martin and Simon. And it all started when me and Martin were lifting tables in pantry projects and these tables had loads of tins on it loads of food they were really heavy tables and I was struggling to keep the table in the air for long enough for us to move it from A to B so I, I blamed it on the fact that I have soft hands and I think that's why I've been getting a lot of stick this week because I blamed it on my soft hands but in reality both uh, Simon and Martin knew that I simply just wasn't strong enough. And you know what? I blame the fact that I'm not strong enough on me as a teenager going to the gym quite frequently, but very hit and miss. I'd be going for a couple of weeks and I'd get myself really excited. I was determined that I was going to get big, I was going to get muscly, I was going to get in shape. And I could be all in, all fired up for the gym and then a month later lose momentum and stop going completely. And I think losing momentum is something that happens in all areas of life. If you're anything like me, then you've picked up a New Year's resolution before and then dropped it a couple months later when the momentum goes. In fact, for me to be going on a couple of months before losing momentum would be extremely impressive. As a young person growing up, I used to go every summer to Soul Survivor, a Christian festival for people ages 13 to 18. And I loved it. These places were incredible, coming together with thousands and thousands of other Christians to uh, meet with God, to worship God together and to get fired up for what God was going to do was incredible. And I came um, away from Soul Survivor every year so excited, so fired up that God was going to use me to transform the world, that God had um, put in me this fire and I was ready to spread it to everyone. I was so excited. I was so fired up. But a couple Weeks after leaving Soul Survivor every single year, the momentum had worn off and I was back to being the exact same as I was before I went to the festivals. And I want to look at this morning, how can we have a faith that endures even when the momentum has gone? Simon talked last week about how we run the race set before us. And as he was talking about that, it made me think of 
the game Mario Kart. See, me and Emma play Mario Kart a lot on the Wii. We love the game. But it's basically a race in your cars, but there are boxes that you go into during your race. And some of those boxes will give you something positive, like a speed boost. That means you could go faster for longer. But also, some of those boxes would give you a red shell. And a red shell, if you were hit with a red shell, you would tumble over, you'd lose your momentum, you'd stop and you'd slow down. And it got me thinking that the snowdrop moment that Simon was talking about a couple of weeks ago, the moment that gives you a glimpse of the future, a hope of what's come, when you see God's power at work and his love at work, that's a bit like getting a speed boost on our run, on our run uh, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's like we get this speed boost where we run faster, we run for longer, and it feels like a breeze. But what happens when that speed boost is just a distant memory and you feel like you're constantly hitting red shells? You're constantly losing momentum and slowing down on your race towards Jesus. However much we've seen God move in our lives, any one of us can feel this loss of momentum at some point during our journey of faith. In fact, we read in Exodus in the Old Testament that even the Israelites who had seen God move and been blessed by God's power lost momentum. And you'd have thought that they'd had enough snowdrop moments to cling on to for the rest of their lives. You'd have thought that their, um, their faith bucket, their faith tank was overflowing and could never run dry. I mean, they saw firsthand God send the plagues to twist Pharaoh's arm into allowing them to escape, be freed from slavery. But then when Pharaoh didn't uh, free them from slavery, uh, God parted the Red Sea and allowed the Israelites to escape Egypt. I mean, they'd seen God's power in incredible ways, the parting of the Red Sea, and they knew that it was all because of the love that he had for them. So they saw his power and his love in incredible ways, yet not long after they escaped Egypt, they lost momentum and they ended up worshipping a golden calf that they created. See, throughout our journey of faith and relationship with God, there will be moments where it's so easy to follow him. And it's so easy to follow him and to have faith because it's clear that his power and his love is at work in our lives. Because in these times, we're surrounded by snowdrop moments, moments that remind us of what is to come. But how do we respond when the momentum of these moments has gone? When we struggle to see God's love and power in our lives and when, quite frankly, our faith is struggling. 
And I want to look together at something this morning that I believe is one of the biggest factors of whether our faith can endure through these tough times. And when I say tough times, I'm not simply talking about uh, tough life circumstances, although that is part of it. But I'm also talking about when our faith is struggling, our momentum has gone, and when we feel like our faith has run dry. This thing that I believe has this massive impact uh, on our endurance of our faith in this time, the thing that I'm saying this morning that I think would, will give us the endurance through tough times is this. Being real about where we're at with our relationship with God. So I want to spend a bit of time this morning looking at why I believe it is incredibly important for us to be real and to stop faking it. I love the way Jesus went about his life, calling out those who put on a front of holiness, those who were obsessed with convincing others that they had a great relationship with God. But in reality, they just wanted to be seen as holy, as important and as wise. In the New Testament, the Greek word for hypocrite is used 18 times. And on most of those occasions, it's Jesus saying to his disciples, do not be like those people who care more about how other people perceive them than they do about their relationship with God. One of the best examples of this is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, when Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. See, this is so clear here that Jesus is hard to fool. But if you want it any clearer, if you want it any clearer that you can't fool Jesus, then you don't need to look any further than the end of John chapter 2, which in my Bible has been given the little title, Jesus Knows What's in Man. So ladies, you're off the hook this morning because clearly you are far too complicated for even Jesus to be able to understand you, which makes me feel a lot better. I'm joking, obviously. It's talking not just about men, but about humankind. So this is what it says at the end of John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows what is in us. He knows when we're putting on an act. He knows when we're twisting the truth. He knows when we're putting on a front of being close to God. You cannot trick God. God doesn't watch our services on a Sunday morning and think, I'll tell you what, them over there with their hands in the air during worship, they must absolutely love me. Instead, we see in this passage that there's a difference between believing in God and being entrusted by Jesus. Jesus. 
And it's the same as the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Something that's become weirdly normal in our culture, and don't pretend this doesn't include you, is stalking someone on social media. Sometimes, unintentionally, you can find yourself on the Facebook page of your sister's best friend's hairdresser and finding out what her hairdresser did on the 2nd of March 2011. But also, sometimes this Facebook stalking or Instagram stalking can, become, uh, can be a lot more intentional. For example, a couple of weeks ago, I met my friend's girlfriend for the first time. And we went out of a meal, um, we went out for a meal with them to get to know her. But it became quite evident to her after a couple of minutes of, sat, of sitting down for our meal that I probably knew more about her than she knew about her. And if someone had asked me previous to this meal what she was like, what my friend's girlfriend was like, I'd be able to tell you what she looks like, what of her friends, uh, what of her family are on Facebook, where she went on holiday last year and what she had to say about her holiday last year. But I didn't have a relationship with her. I didn't really know her, but I'd still be able to tell you things about her. I knew about her, but I didn't know her. And this is something we see in the church far too often. People that could tell you all about Jesus's life, but don't really know him, don't have a deep relationship with him. And it's easy for us to put on an act both to ourselves and to others that we know Jesus simply because we know about Jesus from coming to church. Matt Chandler said something in a sermon that I watched a while back and it has really stuck with me. He said this, a lot of people in the church, a lot of people in the church know enough about Jesus to convince themselves that they know Jesus. A lot of people in the church know enough about Jesus to convince themselves that they know Jesus. And equally, how many more people on top of that have got themselves stuck into a surface level relationship with God? From talking to my friends and looking at my own journey of faith, I know that it's something that's so easily done. And the biggest reason, in my opinion, for this surface level relationship with God is because we've been told or we've picked up from Christian culture a way of doing our faith and walk with God that is unbiblical, that is static and that is extremely unhelpful. This way of doing Christianity breeds a routine rather than a relationship. 
One where we go through the motions, we come to church each week, we thank God for the same things each week. We read a passage in the Bible each day as quick as we can so that we can tick off our quiet time quota and then we just get on with normal life. And let me tell you something now, this is not what our relationship with God is supposed to look like. Yet sadly, it probably describes a large, large number of Christians' relationships with God in the Western church. Stale, routine and boring. And to be honest, I don't really blame individuals for falling into this way because it's a result, as I said a minute ago, of a culture that's been created in the evangelical church. And what is this culture that I'm suggesting breeds this boring, stale faith? Well, the best way I'd describe it is that it's the idea that before God, we must be on our best behaviour, wear our Sunday best, put on a smile and thank God for everything bright and beautiful, regardless of our week and how it's been, and then come to church and sing out how marvellous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Yes, God is good all the time, and yes, this is a truth, but life isn't. And sometimes, even when we know it's true, singing these jolly songs is the last thing that someone with depression, with anxiety, someone who's had a rubbish week, who's lost their job or is struggling with their faith, wants to bring before God. The problem with this culture is that it suggests that our interaction with God must always be happy, thankful and together. And therefore, if we aren't feeling happy, thankful, and together, we feel guilty and we retract from God rather than bringing these things to him. And this is a completely unbiblical way of doing relationship with God. And we see this throughout scripture. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, A broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. God will never despise the honest prayer of, I've had an awful week, I'm struggling with life, I feel distanced from you, I'm doubting you, I'm struggling with my faith. In fact, let me suggest that God longs for a relationship that with you that rather than putting on your Sunday best, putting on a smile and singing jolly songs all the time, it looks a lot more like a journey where you're honest with God about where you are at and God is invited into your emotions, into your ups and downs. And how do I know that God longs for that? Because we read it all over scripture. One clear example is the book of Psalms. The Psalms are full of lament people who are angry at life and therefore angry at God, people that are confused by God, 
people that are depressed, suicidal, crying out to God, crying with God, is full of honest prayer. A few weeks ago, we had a prayer meeting on the same evening that a press conference went live, giving what was quite frankly a depressing insight into the second wave of COVID. And we got together and we prayed about this. We gave it to God. We pleaded with him. We prayed for safety. And then at the end, when we had a bit of time, there was an opportunity for anyone who wanted to, to pray aloud and bring something before God. And in this moment, I felt a nudge, maybe from God, maybe from me. But it was a nudge to go up and to be real, to lament, to cry out to God. I don't understand where you are in the midst of all this. I don't understand what you're doing. But I have to confess, instead, I stayed in my seat because I was worried about the response of me being real with God in public, in questioning God in public and in looking for answers from God. Let me release you this morning with a truth that can really set you free and can help you thrive in your relationship with Jesus. Doubting and wrestling with God is both normal and healthy. And what makes me say that it's both normal and healthy? Well, it's clearly normal because we read it throughout scripture. And it's clear that it's healthy because of the way God responds to the doubt in scripture. The disciples doubted Jesus just before the Great Commission was given. In Matthew 28, 16 to 17, we read, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. In fact, in the original Greek, it doesn't add the word some before doubted. It simply says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but they doubted. The adding of the word some came when the Bible was translated to English and these, uh, they added the word some to make us feel more comfortable about the doubt that went on in that place. And this proves that being open about doubt is very uncomfortable and goes against the culture that's been created in Christianity. But the Bible's full of people who ask questions, who challenge God, who doubt him and who push God to explain to them what he is doing. Along with a few others in the church right now, I'm reading a book called The Badly Behaved Bible uh, by Nick Page. And my favourite chapter in this book is a chapter called The Joy of Doubt. And in this chapter, Nick looks at uh, various examples of God entertaining and even finding joy in working through the doubts of those who follow him. And I could pick up on any one of those examples, but let me just give you one of his examples. 
the example of Abraham. Abraham, who's known by so many of us as the great man of faith. But Abraham questioned and doubted God lots throughout his life. I mean, the most obvious one of those is when God promises him a son and instead of trusting that promise and waiting faithfully, Abraham decides that he would take it into his own hands because he doubted what God had said. And instead, he sleeps with his wife's maidservant. So Abraham doubted a promise of God, but he also questions the character of God and even bargains with him in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is told by God that he's going to destroy Sodom and because, uh, because the people are wicked. But what follows is an incredible scene where Abraham essentially barters with God. So let's just read this now, Genesis 18, verses 24 to 33. It says this. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Good maths there, God. And then it continues. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. What an incredible passage of bartering, of bargaining that goes on here between Abraham and God. But why is it that God entertains this bargaining? Clearly, he already knows how many righteous people are in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Nick Page argues that this bargaining is for Abraham's sake. Abraham needs answers. He needs to know that the God he is following is just. And when you read the passage, it does seem obvious that this is exactly what is going on. Abraham says to God, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Abraham is clearly questioning whether God is just because of the actions that God is saying that he is going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
He's clearly questioning and wrestling with God. And get this, God is prepared to stick around. He is prepared to be questioned and he's even prepared to explain and justify his own actions. What he doesn't do is turn to Abraham and say, why are you questioning me? Do you not know who I am? Many Christians may tell you not to question God, but God doesn't. He sticks around, he listens and he gives answers. God welcomes doubting, wrestling and even bargaining in this passage. And we see it too in the life of Jacob. In fact, Jacob wrestles with God and wins. And as a result of wrestling with him and winning, God decides to call him, changes his name to Israel. So Jacob is now called Israel. And essentially what God is suggesting here, what is suggested in this passage by changing Jacob's name to Israel as a result of wrestling with him, is that doubting and wrestling with God is at the very heart of what it means to be Israel. Wrestling with God is at the very heart of what it means to be God's people. Doubt is not a sin. Doubt at times is a necessity. And this is why I really don't like the term unshakable faith. Because I think it's really unhelpful. Because it suggests that a good faith is one without doubt, without question and without wrestling. It helps set this culture of putting on a smile and pretending to ourselves and to God and to others that our faith is thriving, even when it isn't. And that's detrimental to the endurance of our faith. And when I say the endurance of our faith, what I'm not saying is that it's detrimental to whether we turn up at church on a Sunday or whether we come to the prayer meeting or whether we um, read the Bible in the evening. But it's detrimental to a faith that's based on a person and a faith that comes into life through relationship with a person. Because what do you do otherwise when you're not doing great, when you don't understand what God is doing, when you're angry about the cir- your circumstances, what do you do? Do you pretend that everything is okay and say something you think is how Christians are supposed to respond? Because after a while, that fake facade will get tedious. It will wear off and your passion for God will go because who wants a surface relationship? I guess the other option is that you just stop spending time with God when things aren't good. I mean, if you're only allowed to thank God and be happy and sing jolly songs around him and you don't want to fake it, then I guess that's your only option, right? To stop spending time with God when things are bad. Or there's an alternative. 
And this alternative is believing that God isn't insecure, that he can take your questions and your doubts. It's believing that God wants you to be honest and not to put on an act. And it's believing that God knows what's in your heart already and wants to journey with you through the ups and the downs. I really believe that having this mindset where we do not need to fake it, where we can admit to ourselves when we're struggling with faith, when we can bring to God our questions and our doubts, and when we can tell other people, those around us, that we're struggling to reconcile God's love with our circumstances is an extremely releasing way of doing faith. And it will help us endure through the time when our faith loses momentum. But it requires us to do three things. One, it requires us to stop beating ourselves up when we struggle with our faith. We need to remember that it's not a sin to doubt or to struggle. When you do this, when you release yourself from this, you allow yourself to go deeper into the scriptures. Because with certainty, you stay still. But with doubt, you move forward. So firstly, to stop beating ourselves up when we struggle with our faith. Secondly, to bring all that we are to God. Remember that we cannot trick God. We don't need to say the right things to him to wear our Sunday best and be altogether imperfect in front of God. He will never despise the prayers of a broken heart. When you bring to God your doubts, your questions, your struggles, he will sit with you like he did with Abraham. God doesn't want a relationship that's stuck on a surface level, where you cannot go to him when things aren't great. But equally, God doesn't want you to hide your true feelings, thoughts and emotions from him. Be real with God and your faith will grow even maybe especially in the times of doubt. So firstly, stop beating ourselves up when we struggle with faith. Secondly, bring all that we are to God. And finally, number three, don't hide your doubts from your family, from your friends. Simon spoke last week about how faith moves forward with friends. And this is particularly true if we're willing to be honest with one another. If the church isn't willing to be open, truthful and honest with one another, then the body of Christ is not functioning in the way that it was created to function. The culture of putting on your Sunday best and faking it in front of your church family must be put to an end. If we're to endure in our faith, real deep faith, we need those people around us to pick us up when we're struggling, to listen to us, to spend time with us as we seek God in the midst of our doubts and our questions. So we need to stop beating ourselves up when we struggle. We need to bring all that we are, including our doubts, to God. And finally, we need to not hide our struggles and doubts from our family. We want to be people with a faith that endures, 
So let's not suppress our doubts and pain, but instead let's bring it to God and let our friends journey with us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you're not an insecure God. God, thank you that you sit with us and listen to us. You spend time with us. You don't want a surface relationship with us. And Lord, thank you for the people that you put around us as well. Lord, I pray that we will be a people, we will be a church that sets the standards in being real, in being honest, in being open. Lord, we want to break any cycle of... um, a feeling like we need to put on our Sunday best on a Sunday, that we need to put on a smile and sing jolly songs, however we're feeling. Lord, this is something that we see throughout the Western church, and I just pray that you will uh, release a freedom to be open to each other, to be honest with each other, and to be real with you, Lord. Lord, we want to go deeper in relationship with you that we endure when faith loses momentum. So Holy Spirit, will you come and fill us? Will you give us the courage to do this? And will you help us to uh, reflect on these things and to, um, if if it needs needs to happen, Lord, that we would say sorry to you for when we haven't let you into parts of our lives. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.